Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Having been replaced in last week's episode by some bloke called Gordon Murray. Uh, I'm afraid I'm back for this week's podcast. Um, Andrew, we've got lots of different cars that we're going to sort of review throughout this podcast. But before we get stuck into that, I, I just want to debrief on last week's episode of the podcast that you recorded with Gordon Murray, because it was fascinating just to listen to um, on the podcast. It must have been brilliant to have been there in the same room with him and poke around the, the T50 that he was talking about as well. Yeah, uh, first of all, hello everybody. Um, good to have you back, Dan. Uh, it was quite good mm. to have Gordon last week, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but yeah, um, back to normal. Uh, yeah, I mean, geez. Um, it's like, I can't remember whether, where I wrote this, but it's, you know, talking to Gordon Murray is like sort of being in a really polluted city and then getting a cable car out of town to the top of a of a mountain where the air is suddenly fresh and clear and, and, and you've just got rid of all the rubbish. And, 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 you know, and sometimes you kind of think to yourself, well, why can't I see as clearly as he sees? Because when he explains it, it's so obvious. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't know why nobody else has been able to do a 650 horsepower car, which weighs less than a ton. Um, I suspect it's rather expensive, but just the, just the clarity of the vision and the fact that, you know, he thinks to himself, okay, I want to build a 650 horsepower car and I want to weigh it less than a, it, to weigh less than a ton, but I also want it to seat three people and I want it to have lots of luggage space and I want it to be quiet and I want it to be comfortable. Uh, it needs to have air conditioning. It needs to have a decent navigation system and I'll still do all that and I'll still bring it in under a ton. And, and, and he, I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, we haven't driven it yet. No one's stuck it on any scales yet, but he appears to have done it. 
Um, and it's, you know, there's been so much, um, you know, as I'm sure many people know, we weren't the only people to have spoken to Gordon in the last few days. Um, but so many of our colleagues, you know, you know, Gordon tends not to speak to people um, he doesn't sort of know, like and respect. And, you know, so, you know, everybody who's spoken to um, to Gordon, you know, uh, ha- ha- has been someone who really kind of gets it. Um, and, and we're all sort of saying the same sort of thing, that it's just the clarity of the vision that the man has. Um, I was also much struck by the fact that, you know, uh, this is it's called the T50 because it's his 50th design in 50 years in you know automotive design of, of one form or another. Um, and you kind of think that, you know, the, you know, Gordon's 74 now and you kind of think, well, you know, maybe it's pipe and slippers time for him now. I'm not a bit of it. I mean, he is... <laughs> He is raring to go. Um, and, the, you know, yeah, I, I, the, 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 his 50th design seems to be as ambitious as any of the others, doesn't it, really? It's extraordinary. Yeah, and, 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 you know, and, and if it is uh, what it seems to be, and, you know, and if you look at all the people who are involved with it, like you know, Cosworth and Extract and so on and so forth, there's no real reason to think that it won't be. You know, I, I genuinely think that this in, you know, well, 2022 it will be when customers start getting cars could be you know another sort of landmark moment like the f1 was in 1994 um and and who would have thought that the same bloke would be responsible for both uh no it's it it, it is remarkable it really is i think what's at the heart of it actually thinking about it now is that he's he's not interested in raw performance stats or lap times or any of that stuff um he prioritizes the way that a car feels to drive on the road at normal speeds as well as at you know ballistic speeds and that's at the heart of everything that he does so he only needs certain width tires he only needs brakes so big he only needs all that other stuff which is how you start that virtuous circle of a car getting smaller and lighter and simpler Um, and and you look at everybody else in the game and they all brag about lap times performance figures top speeds um and that seems to be at the heart of what makes those cars bigger, heavier, more complicated, and ultimately, um, although we haven't driven the T50 yet, sort of less engaging on the road in the real world. Um, yeah, 100%. I mean, it, it's not even that he's not interested in it. He's actively anti it um, for all those reasons that you express, because he will tell you that the moment you start chasing you know, VMAX and the moment you start chasing lap time, you're actually working against and creating cars that are contrary to, you know, to to what we should all be wanting cars to be, which is just great to drive. And for him, there is, there's no further justification required. You know, the car just has to be great to drive. That's it. Okay. And then you think, okay, so how do we do that? And you know, and, you know, as he, as he once said to me, cut me and I bleed Lotus. Um, and the first job he ever applied for was at Lotus in the uh, when he first came to the UK in the early 1970s. And he didn't get a job, but he got one at Brabham. But, you know, Lotus is where his heart is. And more to the point, Colin Chapman's style of engineering um, is what is, you know, uh, lifeblood to Gordon Murray. And it, it, it just shows through because if you want to make a car good to drive more than anything else, you just make it light. And that is why, you know, I, I think that people have been going in the wrong directions. And that is why, you know, two ton Bugattis and that sort of thing. I just I just struggle to get excited about it. It's also one of the reasons I am concerned 
about 2,000 horsepower, two-ton electric hypercars because, you know, I'll wait until I drive them if anyone's kind enough to let me. Um, but I just don't see how you can synthesize that feel um, that you get from, you know, a car like I imagine the T50 is going to be and certainly like the F1 um, was. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's yeah, going to see Gordon is, is, is a breath of fresh air and, and long may I continue to do it. <laughs> I, I hope that if this car, the T50, has any legacy at all, it's that it demonstrates that there are plenty of buyers out there for very, very expensive two million pound plus supercars, hypercars, but also more real world stuff that actually aren't fussed about enormous power outputs and acceleration figures and so on. I just think McLaren's Mike Fleur is on record already as saying that he's he can't see McLaren Automotive stepping aside from the horsepower race. Um, and I, I just love the idea that someone, Gordon Murray, has come along with this car that he's going to, after tax, it's going to be 3 million quid or something, isn't it? Well, um, 2.36 before tax, so you do the math. Yeah, it's going to be plenty. Yeah, and it's, you know, and it's got a paltry 660 horsepower. I, could, I just, you know, I think some of the established supercar makers wouldn't dare release a 2, 3 million pound vehicle like that with anything less than a thousand horsepower yeah i mean i mean i I, th- I think the point i would make um particularly from what fluid has indeed gone on the rocket record has said that the reason he says that is not because mclaren doesn't want to make cars like that it's just you know any car manufacturer has to make the cars it believes its customers want to buy um and you know and, and i think the fear is is that you know is, is that it's such a Oh, it's such a binary thing, isn't it? You know, you have to. I mean, a car has to have more power than the last. And the problem is, as you know, you know, the moment you give a car more power, um, then you make it heavier because it's got to have bigger brakes and it's got to have bigger tires and bigger wheels and you know, and and and, and you know, and more robust suspension, um, and on and on and on. And then you get into you know whatever the opposite of the, of the virtuous circle you describe is. Um, and I, I guess. Where Gordon is is lucky or has put himself in a fortunate position is he doesn't have to play that game because ultimately he has to sell 125 cars. Um, and he knows that there are enough people out there, particularly with his reputation, um, who will do that. So he doesn't have to play that game. He can just say, OK, guys, this is the car I want to buy. I'm Gordon Murray. Uh, sorry, this is a car I want to create. I'm Gordon Murray. Is this a car you want to buy? Um, and of course, there are at least 125 unbelievably wealthy people in the world who'll go, yeah, of course, bring it on, because it's Gordon Murray. This is the man who designed world championship winning Formula One cars, the man who designed the F1. His credentials speak for themselves. Now, you know, a normal car manufacturer, even an abnormal car manufacturer like, um, like McLaren or Ferrari, you know, needing to sell, you know, not a hundred or so cars, but thousands of cars, it's different, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, you're, you're quite right. And yeah, and they have to iterate and come up with new models. And it, it, they seem to believe that those new models have to be faster than the last, as you've, as you've suggested. Um, and that's how that cycle begins, I suppose. I just hope that the, the philosophy behind the T50 eventually rubs off on others. Um, in some ways, it's a shame that this, this fascinating new cars come along. And it's so out of our stratosphere, you know, it's so far beyond that we'll be lucky if we ever drive one. It's, I, but, do, but, do you, but, but do you not think, and this is, I, this is what makes me fear that the T dot, I don't know what the dot's for, the T dot 50 is, <laughs> um, you know, isn't going to 
lead to a wholesale re-evaluation of things in the same way that the F1 didn't. Because if you look at those manufacturers who have tried to do what you have suggested and build cars that aren't interested in you know, lap times, but are just there to be driven. Um, and you own one of them. Um, let us not forget your your lovely A110. But I'm also thinking about things like the, you know, the GT86 uh, Toyota and things like that. You know, they've not done brilliantly well. Hmm. Um, yes, yeah, sadly, I think it's a relatively small number of people who who actually prioritize that prioritize that sort of thing and you know a small number of people is fine if you're charging 2.3 million isn't it <laughs> you know you only need 100 or 125 of them um, exactly right yeah well there we go um there were also so many little nuggets in that episode that you recorded with gordon that it occurred to me would have made fascinating dn posts in themselves i'm thinking he spilled the beans on that bmw sports car supercar that almost was but wasn't uh, a mid-engine two plus two thing a thousand cars per year um much more affordable than the f1 1100 kilograms signed signed off by the bmw board um and then ron goes and does a deal with mercedes and, <laughs> and, and, and you know not entirely surprisingly they went well see ya yeah I, I'm just brilliant amazing that we were denied that car um and amazing as well to hear murray talk about the slr and how that turned out the way it did yeah yeah, I mean, all the things that clearly... I mean, actually, he was quite good because I was about to say all the things that he was never able to say at the time. But in fact, he did say pretty much all that stuff at the time, but obviously on an off-the-record basis and uh, and we couldn't report it. But um, yeah, interesting. Uh, and it, well, honestly, it was... it was a, In fact, I was, it, it was... You know, we sat down for an hour. Um, it could have been two, but we'd already been together just pouring over the car and its engine and everything else for you know, at least an hour and a half before that. And I think I think I was booked to see him 45 minutes and he just kept on cancelling meters. And I cancel that one, cancel that one. And um, <laughs> and oh, yeah, it was just um, it was just great. It was terrific. That's brilliant. And you can see why having had that experience of designing the SLR, which seemed to be a process you know, of committee why he's getting back to the, the more autocratic approach that seemed to have worked so well with the F1 that he's now applied to the T50. Um, it's just the way he works, isn't it? Yeah, and, uh, and you know, I, I guess, again, it would be more difficult if you're you know, trying to sell thousands of cars. I think you have to have a more collegiate approach. But you know, when you have a mind that, that is that clear and a vision um, which is that strong, uh, you don't really want anything to get in the way of it, do you? And, you know, and, and I don't think that Gordon's ever been particularly good at doing what he's told. Uh, he does what he wants to do um, and, the res- and let the re- results speak for themselves. I can't wait to drive it. Yeah, same. One last word on, on, on this topic. But maybe Gordon Murray's thing is that he's very, very good when he, he, you know, he's building or designing a car that will only sell in very, very small numbers because he can be autocratic and he can make the final call and never compromise on the final vision. But, but when he's tasked to build a car that you know, is produced in bigger numbers, uh, the SLR happens. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe, but 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 you know that was that was Mercedes car and that was McLaren, you know, working to a Mercedes brief, and you know the, the SLR was a you know and Gordon will defend aspects of it. Um, yeah, as it he was, did. It, yeah, it, 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 it was you know it was a fascinating car at the time, um, but you know I, th- I think those people are like that. I mean, you know, um, I, I, I can't you know stray too far from what's been published, but I don't think it's a great secret that you know that Aston Martin uh, and Adrian Newey. Um, I, I think Adrian's view of what the Valkyrie should be and Aston Martin's view of what 
they knew it needed to be to be a homologated legal road car. Um, I, I, I think it is fair to say that there were some fairly um, frank exchanges of view um, that, that, that went on on that subject. Um, and, you know, you can absolutely defend both positions. But, you know, guys like Gordon and Adrian are just used to um, to running the show and saying what they think the way should be and then that happening um and you know it's never going to be pretty if somebody else turns up and goes well actually you know there's these things called you know technical regulations or we've got to sell thousands of them uh you know whatever it is that gets in the way of that so you know i think these guys as gordon i suspect is probably about to prove are just best when left to doing absolutely what they want to do um and then just going to an incredibly you know small number of people um who are rich enough to be able to afford it mm. yeah there we go. So I just need to drive the thing now and save up £2.3 million plus taxes. Um, okay. Well, let's move on to the car reviews then, because you can tell that no new cars were launched to the media for several months because, well, the corks come out of the bottle and they're coming thick and fast. Um, we've got a few to talk about. We'll start off with the Aston Martin DBX because, um, well, the embargo lifts today. So it's sort of, in in a sense, the newest car. We're also going to talk about the Defender because we've already spoken about it on this podcast because um, you drove it before lockdown, but I've I've driven it recently, so I think we can have another chat about it. Um, I think you're going to give a bit of a shooing to the mini John Cooper Works GP, which I'm looking forward to. Um, (laughs) And then we'll a couple of other supercars that that we might well come on to. Um, so DBX, let, let's start with a little bit of context. Did, Aston Martin, of course, they'll, they'll never say if it's life and death um, for the company that you know the success or otherwise of this car. But Aston Martin, in its current form, given its current financial struggles, I, I mean, it, it's it's crucial, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, it is absolutely crucial. I mean, the thing about Aston Martin, and you know, I've written a book about this, um, so I've been right back to the get-go. I mean, Aston Martin first went bust in 1925, uh, and it's done it fairly regularly. Uh, or it did it fairly regularly. You have to be careful what you say here because Weston Martin hasn't got bust and you, know, and, and, and you mustn't say that it is. But, you know, it, it, it's had a lot of owners. Um, it has... Um, had the most extraordinary up and down life. Um, and, and often it has survived more on sort of charm and character and tradition than it has on, on the ability of its cars. Now, I wouldn't say that's the case today, but the point I would try to make is that Aston Martin is just one, it's just one of those brands that apparently just can't kill. Um, you know, I can remember. Victor Gauntlet, who I'm sure many people listening to this will remember as one of the sort of more charismatic Aston Martin chairmen, he once told me that there are two occasions when he went to the office in the morning expecting to lock the factory gates as he left that evening. He couldn't see a way that it would survive. And yet here we are decades later and, and, and there is Aston Martin. And, and, and the other point I would make is, you know, whatever its troubles and whatever the cause of those troubles, you know, the product is good. Um, you know, I would say they have the strongest product lineup now that they've ever had, certainly in the time that I've been doing this job. Um, and, you know, I think that there is a lot to play for. But yes, no question at all. They are in desperate, desperate trouble. And the DBX has to work. It, it's odd, isn't it, that, you know, we've, Aston Martin finds itself in a situation where, you know, this most blue-blooded of British sports car manufacturers needs to be rescued is relying on a, you know, whatever it is, a 2.1-ton SUV to, to save it. But that appears to be where we are at the moment. 
Yeah, it's a very good point because in the past, as we've spoken about before, Aston Martin has been saved by the DB7. It's been saved by the DB2. Um, and, and now, as you, yeah, it's a, it's a huge high-riding SUV that, with any luck, is going to secure the, the sort of future stability of the market. Yeah, it really is a sign of the times. Yeah, um, I mean, as, you know, and, to be, and to be fair, you know, there's precedent. Look what the, look what the Cayenne did for Porsche. You know, there were lots of people, myself included, gosh, you know, who were, I can, I can just remember, I can remember writing that however impressed I was, I was with the car, I just wished it had never been built. Um, and, you know, how wrong did I get that? Because, of course, what I failed to appreciate um, was the relationship between the Cayenne and the Porsches that I love to drive because one had paid for, you know, one, you know, the, the SUVs paid for the, for the 911s and so on and forth and the 911s gave the SUVs the credibility they needed to be sold in the first place. And it's a, it, and, and it's a remarkably strange yet harmonious relationship. And, and who's to say that a well, thick end of 20 years on, um, the DBX can't do the same for Aston Martin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So, you, you, I know you drove um, a very a, an early pre-production prototype a little while ago. You've since driven a production car. W- 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 had, had the car evolved at all, or was it just sort of better panel fit and stuff? Well, I mean, you know, the the, the first drive was a bit of a wing and a prayer, to be honest with you. I, I, the truth is, I, I bumped into them on on a hill and on a mountain somewhere in <laughs> Wales where they were doing some photography, and I just went get a go. And they went, well, can't really, can't right now because you might get seen. But if you turn up at the factory tonight when it's dark, uh, you, can have a quick run, you, can, you can have a quick run around the block, which is literally what I did. So I drove it in horrible weather, in pitch black, for probably 40 minutes. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say that I got a sort of reliable data point from that at all. Um, but from what I could tell, I don't think it had changed um, very much. I mean, the car was a lot less, less rough around the edges, but I mean, the powertrain was the powertrain and the chassis was the chassis. And, you know, when I drove it recently, I suspect like you, um, I got a decent amount of time in the car. I mean, I actually had it for a couple of days. I drove it on road. I actually drove it around track. Um, I've had a proper go in it now. So it, it's difficult to relate one experience to the other. But, um, um, it, it, it was largely what I expected. Um, but, you know, more to the point, what did you think of it? I thought it was what it needed to be. Um, I think I think it's very good, actually. I think it, it does what it needs to do. I think the car will sell because it's an SUV and they're just so popular, because it's an Aston Martin and that brand still has some sort of cachet, and because it looks much better than a Bentayga. Um, but... I think it, it it does more than just sort of tick those few boxes because I think it's it's really good to drive. I think it's got massive performance. The engine sounds characterful, particularly in the the sportier modes. Um, I think it's got that sort of what's becoming a typical Becker ride quality, sort of connected, controlled, yeah. but compliant. cushioned, pli- yeah. yeah, compliant Absolutely. enough to deal with bad surfaces. Yeah. That seems to be the way he likes it. So it's not, you know, if you come out of a, a Range Rover or a Bentayga and you're used to that very fluid, sort of conspicuously air-sprung, um, lolloping body movement that smothers the roads, you know, you might think that the Bentayga, the, 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 sorry, the DBX rides a bit firmly, it's a little bit jiggly, but I think it's what it needs to be, given that it's an Aston Martin. Um, and then, you know, it, 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 it handles... Lots of these cars, because they're littered with clever chassis hardware, you know, those trick air springs and active anti-roll bars and four-wheel drive systems that can do clever stuff, they're all 
really impressively agile given their height, given their weight. Um, and this is sort of right up there w- with them. Um, so I, I, I'm absolutely not in the market for a 2.2 ton, you know, 160,000 pound, whatever it is, SUV. But if I was, I think, I think my money would be going to Aston Martin. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I do agree. I mean, I'd go a bit further. I think the chassis is remarkable. Um, and, I, and I only say this because I've done the one thing that no owner will ever do. And I've, you know, I've punted it around, around a track. But more than that, I've, I've driven it hard cross country. And to me, you know, it does all what you say it does um, for all the reasons that it does it with a, with a clever chassis control. But to me, there's, there's something, there's a feel there. Uh, I feel you just don't expect to get in a 2.2 ton SUV and a balance as well. It really doesn't, um, you know, understand. You know, I found, my, I found myself sort of, you know, just going sideways everywhere in it, which, which I know people won't do and everything else. But it, it is, it is indicative of the approach that they've taken. Um, and I think the balance that they have achieved, um, between its ride and its handling is actually by a distance the best um i have come across in a car of that kind which and when you consider the cayenne's in there um i think to me that gives some sense of the scale of achievement um you know so i think i think it's got that going for it i think obviously it's got a great name going for it i love the way that some people um when i tweeted something about it said that they did they, they didn't like the way it looked at all um which surprised me slightly because okay fine it's a big suv and you know people myself in particular aren't a huge fans of that particular genre of car but i think among that genre i can't think of a car that is 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 anything like as as good looking um but i mean i did have some reservations about it um you know commercially i think the lack of a hybrid is definitely going to hurt them um because i think there are just markets in the world where you know you need to you you, you need to have a plug-in um and one of my hopes is that now that tobias mers the ex-amg boss is installed at aston martin that he's going to be tapping up his chums uh in stuttgart and, and and hastening that process as soon as possible um i i also and this is a complaint that people have made about aston martin's quite a lot of late is however good the outside is i just don't think that the interior is quite up to that standard um, and of course you can spend a lot of money slathering it in expensive leathers and bits of trim and everything else and and you can certainly raise its game but fundamentally the interior arch- architecture is is, is is not as good as i would like it to be and they're still although they've tried quite hard to reface things that is still a bit too much obviously parts been mercedes-benz in there would you agree absolutely agree I, th- I think also i wonder if we had the same car but my car was a in that deep red color with a very caramel interior everything yeah, we had the same car in caramel leather and i think that really didn't flatter the interior at all i've seen other specs that looked a bit better but i yeah i was sort of unimpressed unmoved by the cabin um, i thought it was okay i thought it was fine average for the class really um which actually isn't quite good enough is it when no, not for an aston martin no you, you, you know people, people always forget you actually spend you know what a hundred times more time looking at the inside of a car than the outside if you own it um and it's nice to soak up the stairs from the pavement but actually you know, you do just want to, and it's not bad. You know, you're not like it's not like a sort no. of I don't know a 1980s Ferrari or something. It's not you know it's not sort of Fiat Uno bits here and there, but it's um, it just kind of yeah. 
and I understand that you know that they haven't got the money to do all their own stuff or they've got better things to spend that money on but you know we we have to report as we find and yeah it was it, it's it's not as good as I would like it to be Mm, yeah, in I that completely regard. agree with you. I completely agree with you. I think um, in terms of, in terms of ride and handling, what I much prefer the way it feels in GT mode, which is actually the default mode. And I, I spoke to Becker about this, and he explained that that's. He also said that that's his favourite mode. So from there, you can go into Sport or Sport Plus, and the car obviously becomes increasingly sort of locked down and tauter the the sportier you go. But, but why would you in a car like that? But why would you in a car like that? And it's it's because it's partly because the the active anti roll system has been configured so that in GT mode there's a natural amount of body rolling corners, which is what allows you to feel a car working beneath you. Absolutely. Um, and in and sports, I, mean, sport I, mean, I mean, that is so. That is why you know, for instance, with Porsche, with their you know, when you what do they call it, PDCC, their active yeah, damper absolutely. control. Absolutely. I've never understood why anybody would spend money on it. Um, absolutely you know, agree. I, I just you know. I, I, I had a long-term 991 Gen 2 um, Carrera S um, for a bit, which had it. I think I tried it once, and I never touched the button again. Um, and, and those Mercedes that do the sort of pendolino bit, uh, where they actually lean into a corner. Again, that's something that you try once, and think, I'll never do that again. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. You want particularly cars that are high and heavy like that. Uh, because otherwise, what happens is instead of the car moving, you move, in, you, you move, and so you'll find yourself. Yeah, the car doesn't shift an inch, and you're being thrown around the cabin, and it's just not nice. It's unnatural, isn't it? Yeah, completely. Um, did you drive it off road? Well, pff, uh, I, there, there is what you would call an off road route uh, at Aston Martin's uh, base at Silverstone, and there's not a car in the world with four wheel drive which wouldn't have got over it with ease. So, uh, so yes, I did. I probably drove it more off-road than any owners would um but in fact um you know the off-road test you want to put that car to is you know is is towing a horse box across a muddy field um or dragging a racing car behind it you know across you know some grassy paddock at some you know windswept race circuit somewhere or a Um, snowy ski resort or a snowy ski resort yeah i mean those are the challenges that um DBXs, I hope, are put to, and I suspect that as long as it's got the right, right rubber on it, and as long as everybody remembers it'll only tow 2.7 tons, not three and a half tons, um, I suspect within those limitations it'll be absolutely fine. Because why wouldn't it be? Yeah, I, I did some slightly more serious off-roading at, uh, at Millbrook. Um, oh, okay. And it's, I mean, it, it's it, it, it's capable. You know, it'll it'll do on only sort of mud and snow tires. It will do way more off-roading than. I suspect any owner will ever require of it. Yeah, so, um, so it's, it's good enough. Yeah, yeah, it's good enough in that sense. If you need any more off-road ability than that, I suspect you're a hobbyist off-roader, in which case you're not going to be buying a DBX, are you? So, is this how we say, segue seamlessly into the Defender? Well, I wasn't going to, but now that you said we, well, yeah, we should. <laughs> that was <laughs> smooth as silk there. Yeah. Oh, we're good at this. Um, okay, so as I, as I mentioned, we have already discussed the Defender, but I, I think I wanted to revisit it because I've now driven it. And I come at this car from a very different perspective to you, Andrew, because you still own the series Land Rover that you passed your driving test in. I do. Um, so the Defender must have, uh, you know, a, a, a big place in your heart, whereas I've never really given a damn about them. Um, yeah. So we, I, I suspect we approach them very differently. So, well, um, we do and we don't, um, you know, because 
um well i mean i've written about the car and um you know people who have listened to this podcast or spent time reading um dn on on instagram will know um but the defender that is today um it's not the new defender it's got the name but it's a different car and and in fact to me that's that's not actually a bad thing at all because what it is to me is the replacement for the old discovery um which was another car of which i have you know huge fondness and i think it does that job fantastically well um and i think the new defender is a really really good car um but I just don't think of it as being the replacement for the old Defender. I suspect the, the Ineos Grenadier is going to be a much closer, um, you know, um, sort of spiritual successor than the new Defender will ever be. Um, but then again, you know, Land Rover needs to sell, you know, hundreds of thousands of these things. Um, and so they had to go where the market is. And I think that given, given that, I, I, I thought that they did. I mean, I would say that it's probably the best Land Rover product I've driven in, in many years. Um, how about you? Well, so I just want to ask this. Do you, you say that it's more like the replacement for the Discovery. Is that because you think the current Discovery has gone too upmarket, it's too Absolutely. expensive? 100%. And it's, too- it's too glitzy, it's too glamorous, it's, it's much too close to the Range Rover. It's, you know, it's, it, 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 it blurs the line between a Land Rover and a Range Rover. And more than anything else, until the Defender came along, it just, it just didn't replace that car. Um, I've got a mate um, who um, I just go to the pub with and that sort of thing, uh, who lives locally, who's got, a, I think it's like a 2011 Discovery, and it's done a million miles and, and everything. And every time I get into it, I just feel happy. Um, I, ju- I just look around at all those sort of chunky buttons and the, you know, the hard surfaces, and um, it just feels real. It just feels authentic. It doesn't feel like it's been styled for some fashion victim audience and, and i completely get that that's what range rovers are for but it's not what land rovers are for um and that's what i like so much about the defender it, it, it's recaptured what the current discovery lost um and like to me given that there are range rovers um out there for people who who want to go down that road it lost much more than it gained um so i'm just really really happy that the defender has you know recaptured that territory I think if if they were talking to you off the record, Land Rover would say that the Discovery hasn't quite worked for them, wouldn't they? I think I think they've acknowledged that it's not selling the way they would like it to. Um, yeah, it's, well, I, th- I think it's the too fact expensive. That it looks terrible. Probably got a little bit to do with that. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the Defender. I, yeah, I mean, so I, I drove it on roads quite a lot, and also at Eastnor Castle did some proper off roading in it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think. You know, it's a massively capable off-roader, inevitably. I think Land Rover describe it as its most capable car off-road at the moment, um, which is great. But, you know, I think if you really love off-roading, you want to do more behind the wheel, don't you? Um, I I found myself driving through some really tough terrain with one arm on the armrest, leaning back in my seat as though I was on the motorway. Um, and, (laughs) and, And for me, that... It's impressive what the car can do, but there isn't any satisfaction or enjoyment in that. Um, uh, you see, you see, that's very. Oh, good, you know, we are actually going to disagree about something for once, <laughs> um, because I'm a nervous off-roader. Um, I, you know, I, I've done a fair bit of it, and I don't think I'm bad at it, but I get twitchy when I'm off-road, um, and I want a car 
to I want to I want to fit to feel that the car's on my side and and you're completely right I'm not saying that you're wrong in your judgment at all it's just what what doesn't work for you does work for me the very reasons that you are sitting and thinking you know I just wish that I could you know you know choose when to lock my diffs and you know and the steering was kicking back and I was having to think harder and frankly get more involved which is what we all want to do behind the wheel of a car I'm sitting there thinking Wow, this is just so. This is just so easy, and thank goodness for that, because I'd have stuck it in a tree by now. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can completely understand that point of view, and I think the thing is, I'm not an off-roader either, off-road driver either. Um, I just think, I think if you are, if if that's what you really love doing, this isn't the car for you. I don't think. Um, and I, I don't know who it is that isn't a hobbyist off-roader who finds themselves in that sort of terrain. I mean, I don't really know what what that overlap is, to be honest. But you're going to, you know, if you are a hobbyist off-roader, I mean, you're going to, I mean, are you really going to spend whatever it is, £40,000 on, on a Defender? You're not. It's, not. it's not really after those people, is it? Um, no. You know, you're going to go, well you, well, you might buy a Grenadier, I guess, but I suspect you're more likely to have some beaten up Defender or, you know, a Suzuki or, or, or a pickup or, or, or goodness knows what, um, or even an old, you know, very old disco. Um, so... Yeah, that's interesting because that's one of. The, I think that to me, that's why it was good off road. The very reason it was bad off road to you was the reason it was good off road to me. Because you know, I don't think, if I'm honest with you, that if you got the old Defender and a new Defender, um, I don't think there are many places the new Defender with the right driver and the old Defender with the right driver. So I don't think there are many places that the new Defender could go, which the old one wouldn't get to. Um, the difference is if you put drivers, you know. A, a driver of my kind of um, ability off-road could probably get to exactly the same place as a professional off-road driver could get in an old Defender. Um, and so it just makes it more accessible if you're going to go and do that with your Defender, which sadly I'm not. I'll tell you one thing I'll say about the Defender, and I always think this with important new cars. I always start just sort of keeping an eye out. I've seen loads of them oh, uh, or, already. I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot on the road. Um, there's actually, there's, there's one a village down from me. I was in Europe doing something uh, last week uh, and I saw a couple out there. Um, so hopefully, you know, I think, I think the order books are fulls and I know that they're getting out there. So hopefully it's going to do really well for them. I really hope it does. I, apparently there's a, if you order today, you'll get it in four to six months, um, which is, you know, it means that they've got plenty of orders. They're, they're cranking them out. Um, also, I mean, I, presumably the factories were shut down for a little while um but hopefully that we'll start seeing more of them appear now uh, the one of the things i really liked about the defender is that they allow it to feel like an off-roader um even though uh, you could use it every day on the road without compromise really uh, it could be it could be a family car without compromise but you step you step up into it you f- you put your hands on this enormous steering wheel it's at, at you know not a very car-like angle um and the steering is slightly slow it's a little it's not ponderous but it doesn't have that immediate instant directness of a car steering rack the car the whole body rolls a bit in court so it, it feels like an off-roader um which is it, it gives it this kind of authentic character i like 100 yeah and it's and i think i think that's probably the, the advantage of of having a a Land Rover badge on the front and be a Defender badge next to it, you know, rather than if it has a BMW Roundel, it has to feel a certain way, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know whether you managed to do this, but I, I, I drove two, actually. Um, and one was on sort of, you know, slightly knobbly all-season tyres. And one was on proper summer tyres. Um, and these were on completely, you know, smooth, you know, fairly, um, well, completely dry, warm roads. Um, and I much preferred it on the knobblies. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just preferred that... <laughs> that lack of precision which is a ridiculous counterintuitive thing to say but it just felt more authentic um and i suspect the car you drove was on was on the same all-season tires because um you know the the moment you put it onto you know slightly stiffer walled um you know shorter walled summer tires it just it just felt more like a you know, like a you know, any other car and, and i liked it less for it yeah and those knobbly tires those more knobbly tires they're not I, I wasn't aware of them being very noisy on the motorway no they're not they're absolutely fine do you know what? Whenever you tweet or post on Instagram about the new Defender, your replies are just flooded with comments about they should have done this, I wish it was like that. Everyone's got an opinion on this car, which I think is basically a great thing for Land Rover. Yeah, 100%. Um, but what are the sort of criticisms that you, you keep spotting? I think one of the ones for me is that it's too expensive, um, which, you know, I, I, un- I understand that criticism. That I drove a, a 240... Um, engine the diesel engine four cylinder diesel a 110 so the longer wheelbase and it it was 52k basic thereabouts um which is it's a lot of money it's a lot of money um but i just i just don't know how much less they could have charged um what's an entry one is it sub 40 well the 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 commercial is 35 grand isn't it before before tax um and, and, and i think the i think an entry car is i think it's 42 but i might be wrong um uh, yeah absolutely but i mean i mean it's i think that probably is because they're expecting one car and getting another because i think what they were maybe expecting or even hoping for is a completely back to basics car and as you and i both know it isn't that it is a perfectly viable everyday car i'd be delighted to have one um every day uh and and to use it in all seasons and for all reasons um and you know it's you know it's a big car and it's you know it it still has sort of land rover quality so i mean i'm not sure what they were expecting i mean land rover were never going to sell that car for 25 grand um it just it it just wouldn't make sense on 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 any level but what i would say is that as i drove it i found myself craving the lowest spec possible it's just one of those cars. I don't want to drive a 60 grand, whiz-bang, 300 horsepower, who do flip? What I want to drive is a short wheelbase commercial with nothing on it on knobbly tyres. And, 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 and if I were in the market for such a car, um, that's what I'd have. Because that, to me, is much more in keeping with the Defender idiom. I know that it would still be good enough to do all the things I needed to do on a daily basis. Um, and it would just be... It's, it's, it, it, it goes back to this thing. And I guess it applies as much to the Defender as it does to the T50 Gordon Murray car we were talking about earlier. It just comes back to authenticity, doesn't it? And the more authentic these cars feel... Um, the more we like them, or the more people like you and I like them. But obviously, you know, we also have to recognise that you and I are, and, and I would suggest the vast majority of people listening to this combined represent a tiny percentage of the demographic of people who'll go and buy that car. 
Um, and so, you know, we I don't think we can say, oh, it should have been like this because that's how we would like it to have yeah, been. Yeah, yeah, because, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, there'll be, there, there will be any number of defenders, and Land Rover certainly hopes this is the case, that, that will sell for absolutely top dollar um, and will go and live, um, you know, in central London and, you know, and they'll just pay the congestion charge or whatever because it's worth it to those sorts of people to be seen in that kind of car. Um, and you and I may laugh at them, but, you know, Land Rover's accountants certainly won't laugh at them. Um, and, you know, if they, if, they, if they sell the cars, they sell the cars. Um, and fair enough. I think Land Rover has done what it needed to do to make the Defender a commercial success, which actually is, that's its only responsibility, isn't it? That, that, that's what the company exists to do. I, th- so. I, th- I think there is a slightly, I think there is a, a there, there is a, uh, we, 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 I only say this because of your use of that word responsibility. I think Defender is a nameplate. You know, it's something that, you know, they've used very successfully. I remember when the first car to actually call itself the Defender was, because the Series 3, I think, went out in about 1983, but then they had 90s and 110s. But let's say Defenders have been around for a bit more than 30 years. I mean, that is now a very valuable nameplate to them. Um, and they can't mess with it. So I think there is a responsibility to do justice to the name beyond the responsibility to also make a car that is commercially successful. And maybe one begats the other, I'm not sure. But I think they've done both. I really do. I mean, you know, it's not the Defender that we remember, but it is an absolutely authentic on-off-road Land Rover. Um, and, you know, I commend it for that. I think the clever thing about it is that it's a very usable, it can, it can, you could absolutely use it as a family car. And it's probably more luxurious as a family car nowadays than, you know, a sort of 20 year old, 30 year old Range Rover, you know, given all the equipment it's got and so on yeah, and so forth. Definitely. Um, but it is authentic. It is still true enough to that name Defender. Um, and hopefully that'll be why it, it does well. I think one last word on the cost of it. A lot of people I see commenting online seem to think that it should cost 25 grand, 30 grand. And the reality is cars have become more expensive and that sort of money doesn't really buy you that much VW Golf these days. No, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um uh, and and also, you know, Land Rover also have to protect the bigger brand. You know, you know, Land Rover is not a brand which which is positioned in that area of the market anymore. And you, they'd have to make so many of them, which they probably not be able to sell because there are only so many people who want to buy that kind of car. Um, it's just you know, just, 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 everything about it from a god forbid me saying the marketing point of view um <laughs> is 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 you know i i i'm you know I, I would love it to be 25 grand you know i might even go and buy one if it were but um you know there may be one of me um but you know the, 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 there would be so many reasons they'd lose money on everyone so no i can't it's, it's, it was never going to happen yeah there we go all right well let's move on because we've got a couple of other cars to talk about um and mostly because i just want to hear you giving a bit of a showing to this new mini John Cooper Works GP, which if anyone's read the car review on Instagram at drivenation underscore, um, it, I think in the two and a bit years we've been doing this, we've awarded a five out of 10 rating twice. Uh, and this was the second time. What was the um, first one? It was the, <laughs> the VW Polo GTI. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. A, a, um, pair of, a pair of underwhelming hot, uh, hot hatches. Uh, so did the did the Mini at any point make you laugh, make you smile? No, make not you once. Be pleased no, to be in it? absolutely not. No, absolutely not once. It annoyed me from the moment I got in it. 
Wow. Um, because because car, cars can be flawed and, you know, a bit silly and whatever and not very competent, but they can also be fun and silly. But this just sounds like it was annoying. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, I, I, I honestly don't know where to start. I mean, you know, the moment you get in it and set off down the road, the ride... I mean, you know, if you do what you and I do for a living, uh, you, you would pick up on the ride and the deficiencies in the ride and the steering within the first, I was about to say 10 yards, you know, probably five. Um, and and you're already thinking, well, why is it like this? It doesn't need to be like this. I guess what really annoyed me most about it was that the the sort of the raw ingredients seem so good. You know, the car is light. It is by the standards of such sort of things, given it's a limited edition model, it's not even that expensive. It's got plenty of power. And if you look down the spec sheet at all the stuff that they've done to it, you know, with the springs and the bars and the stiffened um, turrets and the strut braces and the limited slip diff and the forged wheels and the yin and the yin and so on and so on and so forth, um, you know, they seem to have made, you know, a really, really big effort for this car. And for what? I mean, I mean, it is possible because I haven't done it. If you took it to a track, it would you know blow your mind i don't think that it would but it might i certainly don't um completely preclude that possibility but on the road it's just a nonsense it's uh, it cannot handle its power um if it's not torque steering it's tram lining um the steering i suspect because they've had to try to do something to mitigate the torque steer um has just got no feel to it uh, at all it's got an eight speed automatic torque converter gearbox in it i mean you know I, I, I am told there was no other way of doing it but honestly if ever a car needed a slick quick six speed manual in it it's that car but it doesn't it's got this slushy eight speeder which you know works terribly well in 320d bmws um but but not in this and I drove it um, yesterday, um, not far, um, and I then set an alarm as I wrote in the piece and got up early because I just thought I'd just missed something or whatever and went for a proper drive on proper roads in it very early this morning before I say this morning, I'm talking about when we recorded this podcast last week. Um, And I, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing to say, but I found myself doing it because I was required to do it to do the job I have to do, not because I wanted to drive the car. I was out there thinking, well, you know, this is the right thing to do. You are doing this because um, this is a car and you need to drive it in this environment to assess it properly. There wasn't one bit of me that wanted to do it. And that is just for a car like that. And also the other thing, which is so infuriating me about it is, I don't know when you last drove a bog standard Mini Cooper or a Cooper S. They're fantastic little things. I love those cars. I re- I, and actually, I don't think people these days shout about them as much as they used to because I think you know, people are so familiar with them and they, they've kind of done what those sorts of cars have done for the last 20 years. But to me, a standard Mini Cooper is a really good car. And so here you get one turned up not to 11, but about 27 um and you think whoopee let's go and it it just doesn't work i can't think of a car which has looked so good on paper yet disappointed so much more so much on the road and i wonder as well on top of all of that andrew and i think it's quite clear where you stand on the mini john cooper works gp do you have a view on how it looks (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I do have a view on how it looks. And, and, and again, it's, that's completely wrong because I'm a 54 year old bloke. And <laughs> I, I, I quite liked it, which, uh, but my, my, my grown up children, um, uh, you know, who are, who are, you know, rather younger than me took one look at it and said, what is that? Um, and I suspect it's, it's meant to appeal rather more to them than to me. I don't know. I'm not really into cars with lots and lots of chunky add on bits and it's got those slightly silly, um, carbon fiber reinforced plastic wheel arch extensions and that enormous rear wing and the, 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 this, that and the other. But, um, I, I find myself being curiously unoffended by its appearance and I'm not quite sure why, but, um, yeah, um, my, my children would tell you something else. <laughs> wow. There we go. I mean, it's, it's interesting that we started this podcast talking about, okay, a very different car, but one with a very clear purpose. Um, you know, it, it's creator knew precisely what that car was setting out to be. And it sounds to me like the GP t- doesn't have that clarity of purpose, but also it's compromised by daft things. You know, they, they talk about there being no other gearbox option. Well, it, perhaps that's because they decided for themselves that it needed to have 300 brake horsepower. Um, you know, I, I just, I, yeah, I, I don't think I've not driven the car, but I suppose for a car, you know, for a car like that, you know, it, it, you know, for it to. You know, they've only got to sell only, it's actually quite a large number, they've got to sell 3,000 of these things. Um, and I suppose the thinking was it's got to have a load more power than a standard John Cooper works, um, and it's got to have this, that, and the other, otherwise it, you know, it won't command credibility. But yeah, I mean, I completely agree. If they'd um, just been a bit brave and just thought, actually, you know, 300 horsepower, well, you know, instead of having 70 extra horsepower, let's just give it 35 extra horsepower. Um, and you know, it had had whatever that is, you know, 265, you know, I think you'd probably had, I mean, quite often you can't use all the power anyway, because if you're on, the thing is, this is a car, and, and, sorry, oh God, I'm going to go off again on one. Um, <laughs> this is a car that's built in Britain and I'm not coming out of, over all sort of ginger, jingoistic and union jack over here, but it does surprise me that car in Britain appears not to have spent a single minute of its development life on British roads, because if it had, it wouldn't be like that because they would have, you know, whoever did develop it, and I suspect it was developed entirely in Germany, would have just thought, this isn't working, guys. Sorry, we're just going to have to give it a bit more compliance. We're just going to have to sort out the front axle. We're just going to have to either not do it or do it differently because it's just it's just getting in the way. Um, it's like, you know, it's, it, it's like a chef has got all a load of really, really good ingredients and then just sort of, bunged them into a saucepan, given them a stir and hoped. Um, and it hasn't come out quite as expected. And, you know... Uh... <laughs> so, yeah, okay. I think it's quite clear where you stand on this car. So you you won't be expecting a long-termer, by the sounds of it. I won't be asking for one. <laughs> and I don't think... I, I'm sure... That, uh, no, no. I mean, I, I don't actually... Um, I don't like being, you know, getting gratuitously stuck into things. And I never would unless I truly felt what I said, because I understand that people try hard with all cars that get made and that, you know, and that livelihoods and, and, and all sorts of things, you know, often um, are, are influenced by things that people like you and I write. So, you know, you have to be careful and you have to be balanced. And, um, but yeah, I, I guess because it is so surprising, because it is such a rarity that you get into a car and you think, well, this is its intended purpose and it just misses it by a mile. That, you know, you do kind of have to kind of, um, flag it up because it is mercifully a pretty rare occurrence these days. I suppose the real frustration is that the the less hot 
Mini Coopers and the Cooper S, they're such fun to drive, aren't they? And it's, yeah, just, just drive those. You know, yeah. get them, you know, you, you, if this thing costs 35 grand, well, I think for like 22, you can get a Cooper S. I mean, if they were the same money, I'd drive the Cooper S. Uh, I'd drive a Cooper. I mean, they, they, those are real, as I said earlier, just, those are cracking little cars. Um, this isn't. <laughs> okay, well, let's do two minutes on one other car now. Um, and I'll let you choose. You can do the revised NSX or F8 Spider. Hmm. Let's go revised NSX. Um, you have written about the F8 Spider on Instagram for us, I believe. Yes, correct. Um, so I guess that that has a Drive Nation presence of some sort. Yeah, uh, revised NSX. Um, I'll, I'll talk about it a bit generally because it, it actually goes back to what we were talking about with the, the T50 at the beginning of this because it's the kind of opposite of that. It is a car that you know, is is very complicated um, and it's very heavy. It's got a, you know, it's obviously got a, uh, a twin turbo three and a, three and a half litre V6 engine in it, but it's also got uh, an electric motor at the back and another two at the front. Um, and, you know, and, and, and all these things would be fine if when you got in it, you would just think this was some kind of, you know, transformative driving experience. And it just isn't. It just isn't. Um also you can see that particularly with things like the interior materials you know they spent so much money loading all this tech onto the car that you know they've had to kind of it certainly appears that they've had to cut corners um in in other ways and the result is uh is a car that is uh, certainly capable um and not sort of overtly bad in any way that you know a mini gp might be overtly bad <laughs> but it just it just left me cold um i did i did my usual thing i took it up into the welsh mountains and and had a a proper go in it um and i came out i, I didn't did i was i impressed and did i admire it i mean to an extent but i certainly didn't love it um and i found myself thinking well you know a bmw i8 um which is a very similar sort of concept but so much cleverer because you know it's got a carbon tub and you can plug it in and it's got that little three-cylinder engine but it sounds just as good and it's got rear seats and you know this that and the other um and the nsx you know despite the fact that it's it has been revised and they have fiddled with the suspension to try to make it um a bit more responsive um you know i understand why it hasn't sold very well because you know i think it looks great um the build quality if not some of the materials they use is is very good um it's quite quiet it's quite comfortable i think that you know there's not much room in it um particularly luggage space because that's all given over to electric motors but um you know if you weren't going that far or if you're only going away overnight or whatever it would it could work for that but you know this is a this is a properly expensive car it's you know it's uh, it's it's junior mclaren money and I, I just found myself wanting as a driver much much more and i found that for all that it had and again this is i guess like the, the new gp um you know not only is less more but more is less um and that's where i was with it i've had a downer on some cars this week haven't i well, that's okay. We don't mind that at all. I, I yeah, once again, we're in agreement. I, 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 I am impressed by the NSX and what it can do. Um, I, I remember driving one, an earlier car, so long before the facelift, up in, uh, up in Scotland on an Evo car of the year. Um, and dri- one of those quick drives that you have after sunset on the way back to the hotel. And without terrifying myself, I just romped away from everybody else behind me. There was a very good driver in a 911R who just disappeared um and not because yeah 
I'm, as I, you know, I'm a reasonable driver. I'm not especially skillful, but the, the car is just so quick. It point to point on the road. It is so fast, but it leaves you cold. You you sort of feel like your role is diminished. Um, even I think this is one of the things that the Honda people almost brag about that if you leave the automatic gearbox in the right mode but in auto it will shift gear as you would as and when you would yourself with the paddles um which is great that's very clever but what's the point in that you know you you don't even have to change gear for yourself um and it it just for me it just doesn't give you enough to do at the Um, wheel to me it is a fundamental misunderstanding of what drivers want from cars Uh, and 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 this is why i i I, this is why i love old cars um and i think i've probably blathered on about this on the podcast before so i will be very brief but you know you want cars that involve you you don't want to be sitting in the stalls um watching it all happen in front of you you want to be controlling it you want to be changing gear you want three pedals you want steering to feel alive you want to feel part of the machine and the further removed you are from that process by by paddles or automatic gear shifts by electric steering uh, by cars which are dynamically set up to do it all for you um the less involving the driving experience is and you know i understand why car manufacturers um do it that way because sadly most people who drive most cars like that aren't that interested in those sorts of things they're much more interested in what they think that car says about them to their friends neighbors families whatever um but it still saddens me because you know these are cars that purport to be cars for you know proper you know drivers and enthusiasts and and increasingly with cars like you know like the nsx they're they're just not they're really quick capable well-built thoroughly engineered devices um and and that and, and that's that's the, that's the end of it really yeah preach i tell you, uh, i'm absolutely in agreement with you there okay well let's leave that one there um we we're in danger of busting the one hour mark aren't we okay thank you andrew um we'll we'll be back um to talk to you all again next week and please remember to like the, uh, the podcast subscribe leave a rating all that good stuff um and also support us on Patreon if you want to. You, you'll get uh, some exclusive written content from us. That's patreon.com forward slash drive nation. Um, and thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks very much, everyone. Um, I really enjoyed this one, actually. So um, hopefully we'll do it all again this time next week. Absolutely. Goodbye. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel.